Hello everyone. Today's episode of the Langerfam podcast will have a slightly different feel to it. We'll be talking about a rather serious topic, the fate of the interpreters that worked for foreign soldiers active in war zones like Afghanistan. You are certainly aware of what happened there. You'll know that the international community has been bringing its soldiers back home starting last year. However, the many locals that assisted the troops, they stay behind and they have become the target of revenge of the Taliban and other radical groups. British comedian John Oliver dedicated an entire episode of his show to the topic. I recommend you watch it from start to finish. The link is in the show notes for this podcast. But here are a few bits from that show. But if you're in a war zone, accurate translation can be the difference between life and death. And over the last decade, good local interpreters in Afghanistan and Iraq have saved countless American lives. Ask any veteran and they will tell you that translators risked their own lives working for us. And because they did that, they are permanent targets for insurgents. My relatives told me that, hey, Srosh, be careful, the bad people looking for you. And uh, please run away. Uh, I'm afraid of that day which the NATO leave Afghanistan, the United States forces leave Afghanistan. It means we are done. They're going to catch me. They're going to probably cut my head off. Through the Afghanistan bill, we could have given out up to 1,500 visas a year. Guess how many we gave out in 2011? It was three. Applying for a special immigrant visa is a 14-step process, which is a lot. Once you've filled all of this in, you simply submit it for approval and then wait for anything between a few months and a few years. And if you're approved, then congratulations, because you are at the petition stage. The people who they're trying to hurt me, uh, first they killed uh, my dad. And uh, at the next step, they're trying to uh, kill uh, my brothers. Uh, they took my little brother, which I love him more than everyone. Uh, they Once they took him and they told me to uh, pay almost uh, $35,000. My guest today, Robert Hamm, is a two-time Emmy-winning filmmaker and former Army combat documentarian. He currently runs a crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter for a short film about the story of one such Afghan interpreter. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you having me today. It's, it's, uh, it, this is a, it's a great opportunity for me. It's great having you on. Um, before we dive into the topic, let's just talk a bit about your background, because um, you're a filmmaker, so you studied film. Maybe you can talk a bit about that. Yeah, well, I got my, uh, my bachelor's degree uh, right at, straight out of high school uh, in film and had been doing studying film even in high school and had always known that that's what I wanted to do uh, and started traveling in college and shooting. I did several short films, all of which were pretty horrible, but that's kind of the... Uh, <laughs> that's that's what happens you know you you, you learn yeah. your craft and you grow um sure. and then i spent a uh my final semester when i was in my undergrad was i spent a semester in israel traveling around and, and i went into the gaza strip pre pre the israeli pullout um mm -hmm. and i went into ramallah and i went all over the country just interviewing people and kind of also fell in love with uh documentary filmmaking as well uh, i made a feature documentary while I was there, which is also horrible. Um, and, uh, but it was, it was eye opening to me and it helped me with my craft. And, and it also gave me this, uh, desire to do this kind of backpack journalism in, um, in, in, you know, interesting parts of the world. So, uh, mm -hmm. I was, I worked in Los Angeles after that for two years. 
uh, just doing everything. Uh, that's where I'm originally from. Mm-hmm. And um, did film, you know, pro- pro- production assistance, extras, anything I could do to get on a set. Yeah. And uh, felt a little, I, was, I became a little bit jaded about Hollywood and uh, what it is that I could offer Hollywood. And uh, by way of story, by way of experience, and, and yeah. I just decided I needed something, I needed something different. Uh, so I looked into joining the Army. And found mm-hmm. that they had this job that they call a broadcast journalist. Um, I don't really like to to refer to it as a journalist um, because I think that you know I worked for the army, so yeah. you know you you make films promoting the army to a, a, you know a certain degree. So it's different from being like an embedded journalist, which they also had, for example. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um, so I like to kind of. Re- refer to you know what i did was i was a combat documentarian basically for the Mm -hmm. army or a filmmaker and so when i found that they had this job uh i decided to enlist and um you know then i did my basic training and then i went to airborne school and then you do your uh you know your army video kind of your video training which is very pretty basic um Mm -hmm. and then i deployed then i went to an infantry airborne brigade in alaska uh, which was where I was stationed for three years, and I deployed with them for a year to Afghanistan, and uh, basically yeah. uh, did a lot of different things. One of the great, one of the great advantages of my particular job in the army, as opposed to many of the jobs in the army, is that many many of the jobs you kind of focus on just that. Like if you're an infantryman, that's what you do. If you're an engineer, that's what you do. If you're a mortarman, that's what you do. But what's great about my job is I was able to go all over. I went with the infantrymen out. I spent a lot of time in the hospitals documenting their stuff. I went, um, I you know, I went out with the uh, the explosive ordnance disposal teams that you know find the IEDs and and then you know break them apart and blow up the explosives and that kind of stuff. So I got to see a wide diversity of of the the jobs in the military and also met a lot of a wide range of, of people. So it kind of gave me a very, uh, expanded view of what, you know, the army does. And, um, and so while kind of getting into my interpreter situation, um, I worked in a public affairs shop, a public affairs office, basically that ran a lot of, uh, in this particular area, the army's, um, you know, public affairs, for lack of a better term. And we had interpreters that worked with us. So one particular interpreter, uh, I won't use his real name. The, the name that we use in our movie is, Far- is Farouk. Sure, yeah. And um, he was, uh, I mean, he's, he was brilliant. He's about my same age, I'm 30, 32, and he was, this was several years ago, so he was about, you know, 27 and his and they were all pretty young i mean even in afghanistan that was my impression yeah a lot of them are very young yeah. you know because especially the ones that are combat interpreters because they have to go out with the the infantry guys and be able to keep up with them and carry their gear and um my particular interpreter was uh he stayed mostly on the base with us um dealing with interpreting for public affairs and he spoke five languages he had a five, he had a, he had his um uh, his wife, his family that lived off the base that he had to end up moving to Kabul because it got so dangerous. And, um, 
he was just an extraordinary person. His dad was uh, pro, has has been pro Western even you know prior to our invasion. He was an outspoken pro Western kind of type of government anti Taliban uh, activist that had a radio station. He lost his his legs in a bombing um, from the Taliban, and so this was kind of the environment that my interpreter grew up in, and. Um, he is a pretty, I guess, as I got to know him over the year, uh, he was, he just blew me away. He was very compassionate. He was very open. He was also, I mean, there is a perspective, not all Americans, so, you know, but when you're a soldier and you're over there, right, sometimes you have to see things a little bit black and white. You know, it's like there, that's them and we're us and we're here to you know, defeat them, right? Except what happens is as you, as you're there longer, you realize that that kind of simplistic thinking about the conflict um, is not right thinking. I mean, there are them in the sense of the Taliban who are trying to kill you, but you can't, you don't really know what the Taliban guys can look at just like the civilians. They look the same. They're not wearing a uniform. And so um, bringing on these interpreters and making them part of our mission, you become friends with them and they become, you know, our, our way of understanding, I guess, the um, complexity of, of what is happening. So that's what I wanted to touch on as well, because, I mean, they did obviously not just translate and interpret for you, for you, but they probably told you about their culture and the history of the country and all, all that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's some of the best education that I ever got about Afghanistan is from my interpreter and some, and from his friends. Mm -hmm. When you're able to look at a person and understand where they come from and understand what they're about, it, 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 uh, it, it humanizes them and it makes them, and then as you grow, they become your friend and they become somebody that you begin to love and respect mm -hmm. and, and realize that I kind of won the lottery in the sense that I was just born. I had nothing to do with it. I was just born in America in a free country where I could choose what I want to do. And he was born in Afghanistan under a tyrannical rule of these barbaric Taliban. Um, you know, and he's no different from me. He bleeds the same and he feels the same for his wife and his children. And he wants them to grow up in an environment that is that he wants his, his kids to get educated and to grow up and to, to be healthy. It's the same exact, the same, same thing that we want to do. So that was a very, when you, when for me, when I experienced that firsthand, it, it really, um, made me understand a, a lot more about why why we were supposed to be there why you know and what we were doing yeah okay so um the but but i was wondering the the afghan interpreters you had did they have any military training because they were out there with you in combat in very dangerous situations i presume um you know it's it's a completely mixed bag i think that there there were some that had some limited military experience most of most of them if they had military experience they would have been they would be in like the afghan national army um which also had their own interpreters um however the ones that i worked with um didn't and rarely 
rarely carried weapons. Uh, I think there were limited times where a unit, and those were probably more specialized units, like maybe the Navy SEALs or the Army Rangers, would allow their interpreters to carry weapons because it was uh, they were you know they were constantly in need of that. Um, but uh, the interpreters that I worked with mostly didn't uh, didn't even carry weapons, which is I mean when you think about it as a pretty brave thing to be out there without a weapon trusting um you know foreigners to protect them while they're translating yeah okay so when you arrived in afghanistan you were then introduced to the interpreters or were they already on on base how did that how did that work yes this interpreter uh this particular interpreter we had we had a couple but um he had worked for the same public affairs shop for years. So I actually knew friends that had deployed prior to me that have reached out to me and said, I knew him, I worked with him Mm -hmm. and he worked there after me in the same, in the same shop. So he worked in, um, for eight years in, uh, in this public affairs office in, uh, Salerno. And then a lot of, you know, kind of to a more, a wider question is that that's what happens. A lot of these interpreters will come in and they'll work for one unit, and then that unit will leave, and then they'll come in and they'll work for the next unit. Okay. Um, Did it take you a long time to develop the, the trust or the relationship with them, or, or does that go very quickly? For me, I'm a little bit more. Um, I'm I'm a little bit more trusting yeah. than I think some of my colleagues were. It took them a little bit longer to really understand. On, you know, to, to gain, uh, to gain his trust. I mean, it, it, you know, there's again, because you can't, because they're not wearing a uniform, you have to, especially at the, when you first get there, you know, you almost have this mentality, like anybody who looks like them can, could be our enemy. And to a certain, and to a certain degree, there's a little bit of truth to that. Um, there's not much evidence at all that interpreters, have betrayed, uh, you know, Americans, but there have been Afghan national army soldiers, you know, who have, who have turned their weapons on American soldiers. And, and there are, there, there have been, there have been situations and I'll give you an example mm-hmm. is that, yeah. um, one day my interpreter called in sick. He was unable to make it into work. Mm-hmm. And that day we happened to have a extremely, uh, violent rocket attack that happened on the base. And so, you know, one of your thoughts are, did he know? Did he know that we were having a rocket attack? Um, You know, some people would say, well, if he knew and he didn't say anything, then he's a traitor. Or if he knew, uh, you know, for me, I always tried to think in broader terms. I mean, maybe his family was, uh, maybe somebody was threatening his family and he just, or whatever. You know, you do a lot of things when you're trying to survive. However, he, he came back a couple days later. And I questioned him about it, and he reassured me that it um, that no, he of course he wouldn't know, and if he did, he would have told us. And there's there's no way it was just a coincidence. And uh, several days later, he was on the base with us, and we had another violet rocket attack that he and I were in together. And we were there was a rocket that blew up uh, not far, if I could, I think maybe forty or forty meters or so, and. Um, and then we ran to the bunker and we were, you know, continuing to get bombarded by these rockets for several more hours. And in that moment, I realized 
you know, he's in it. He's in it with us. Yeah. He's he's here. He could get blown up just as easily as we could. He doesn't have to be here, but he is. Um, and I think that was that was the moment for me. Even though I believed him, that was the moment that solidified it in my mind that these guys don't have to be here. They're here because yes, they're getting a paycheck, but they're not getting a great paycheck. But they're getting a paycheck. But they're putting their life on the line because they want freedom for their children. They don't want the Taliban to rule and throw acid in women's faces and, and shut down schools. And, and, you know, they want freedom just like a lot of us do and they're willing to fight for it. Um, and so, and this is their way of contributing. And there were those stories. I mean, I did a lot of reading this week about, about this topic and there were stories where, um, these interpreters told their personal stories and how they were approached by Taliban or other people. And they were threatened and said, well, give, give us your badge for the base so we can go in and blow the place up. But they said, no, I, I won't do it. So uh, I think that also confirms what, what you just said. And that's that's pretty impressive to me um, as well. Yeah. Um, so when you finished your deployment and you had to go back, did you, what, what happened to Farouk? Did you know that he would be assigned to another unit? Or did you know what would, what would happen to him, that he would be in danger maybe? Well, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the threat was always there. It was always kind of lingering. Um, I guess, you know, it's this, it's the big elephant in the room, which was if we, when we were there, when we had a presence there and we were, had a lot of soldiers and we were fighting the Taliban and pushing them back, it became very safe for, for Farouk and his family and everybody. I mean, we went through a very rough time because we were there during the surge. Yeah. Uh, and so that's when he had to put his family up to Kabul. But when things got better, he brought them back down. And then he did, you know, we did pass him. Basically, we, we, we passed him to the next unit when they came in, yeah. you know, and this said, this is your, this will be your interpreter for the next year. But the, the big elephant in the room is Farouk would want to stay in Afghanistan. He doesn't, he, yes, he, he would maybe still want to visit America, yeah. but he loves his country. It's his home. He would, it's his home. He wants, to, he wants to live in Afghanistan forever. It's beautiful there. He has his family and his life and everything. But um, with, you know, no matter, you know, whatever you think about the withdrawal or whatever, whatever, the fact is that when we're pulling out and we haven't completely defeated the Taliban, it leaves a void. And now he is, and his life is 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 under threat, and that is the main reason why he wants to come to to America. Um, so anyway, to answer your question, we did we 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 passed him on to the next unit, and uh, I think for him the threat level went down for a while because we were doing very well there. Yeah. Uh, but now that we've uh, the base that we were at uh, closed down in 2013. And so, you know, he basically became unemployed at that point. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and then tensions start to rise when you don't have Americans or coalition forces rather out there patrolling. Um, you know, now you have now you leave it up to the Afghan National Army, which we've hopefully done a pretty, you know, we've we've tried our best to train them. But, you know, so um, so as things as we kind of leave and things kind of start getting a little bit more embroiled then his uh the threat level goes up for him so and that's exactly the topic at hand right that's what i said in the introduction that these interpreters are now 
perceived by some radicals by the Taliban as traitors because they helped the coalition forces and that their their life is in danger, the family is in danger. So um, what many, some countries have been trying to do is is to uh, set up a program to to bring them to safety, basically. Um, and I think in, in the US, there's there's a special visa program. Can you maybe just briefly explain how it works? Well, to be honest, it's very... Uh... It's very kind of a convoluted system. Um, I'll I'll give you my understanding of it, uh, and it it's changed a little bit. They have a it's called a special immigrant visa, and they could apply for it. Um, and basically, barely any of them existed these immigrant visas prior to 2013. And then there was a law passed uh, that gave a much higher number to. Um, basically from the Congress told, told the state department that you have to fulfill these amount of numbers, which is like, uh, I don't know the particulars. Um, and, uh, so now the process is supposed to take nine months. So they turn in their visa paperwork and if they qualify, it should take nine months. Uh, they've got it. The state department says that now it's, it's around 13 months. So they're really kind of out of tolerance for what the Congress mandated. Um, and it's, it's a very kind of slow and bureaucratic process that, uh, is extremely frustrating from somebody outside who just doesn't understand it. Um, and so I guess the next, I don't know if you wanted to get into kind of what this, what I guess people like no one left behind or what they're trying to do to change that. Yeah, why not? But maybe we can, we can first just quickly talk about how you then came to the realization that you wanted to make this movie the interpreter um oh yeah sort of when that when you realized that you wanted to do that to raise awareness and then we'll talk about the other projects perfect okay um so my interpreter reached out to me in uh 2014 mm -hmm. early last year and he said look i turned in my visa this was the third time i've turned it in We tried to, we turned one in for him mm -hmm. and, um, and he, and he, I'm waiting, I'm, I've been waiting several months and it's getting worse for me. Can you do something? And I'm like, okay, I will, I'll write my congressman. So I wrote my congressman and he sent a letter to, he sent a congressional inquiry to the Kabul embassy. And basically the Kabul embassy wrote back and said, and this, this took months, by the way, this was like, it, it, it took a month for the congressman to send the inquiry. And then it took like two or three months for them to send him a letter back. And, and they basically said, look, uh, this is the process. He has to wait his turn. Ba basically that's what they said in, in bureaucratic talky talk. That's what they said. Um, and so I was feeling completely just, I mean, I don't know what to do. I'm not in, I'm not in politics. I don't know what else, I don't know what else to do. Uh, so I started developing, I mean, I'm a filmmaker. So I, I decided I'm going to write this. I'm going to write this story. I'm going to write out my story. So then I'm, I'm, uh, finishing my master's degree at USC and I, I, you know, I'm working alongside some of my filmmaking peers and, um, my, my friend, Jenna Cavell, she, I was, we were talking about this story and she's like, I want to, let me write this short film for you. And I'm like, that's great. And she's like, I'll produce it and let's make, let's make this movie. So, uh, so she started writing it roughly based on my experience with my interpreter. Um, and then, and then we, 
we decided that we were going to do it as like a U, one of our USC projects, but then we decided, you know what, we need a little bit, we need a little bit more money to do this ride, and we want to really make this, you know, uh, we. I guess it was mostly a, a, a financial thing because there's a limited amount of money that you could do when you're at school. So, um, so we decided to start this Kickstarter campaign and raise twenty twenty thousand dollars, and um, hopefully we'll even get a little bit more for this, and um, and make this short film, which will be our goal is to have it be a proof of concept for a feature film that she is also writing that um, that I'll be directing. That is. Uh, that will be based on um, a true story that we've uh, recently been uh, discovering with uh, No One Left Behind, which is one of our nonprofit organizations' uh, partners. And so that's and then that's that's our long-term feature film goal. In the meantime, the short film is is a proof of concept, but it's also a standalone film that we're hoping to, uh, you know, that we will be taking out to film festivals and trying to do a couple things. A, we want to make the feature, so try to sell the feature idea. But B, uh, we want to raise awareness for this, for this, the plight of these interpreters. We want to raise money for No One Left Behind. We want to um, change the law and expedite these visas. Um, and and so those are our those are our kind of goals with this thing. You touch on some of the other projects um so the, the um no one left behind what's what's the background of that initiative um so no one left behind was founded by uh co-founded by matt zeller uh he was an army lieutenant uh he actually deployed the year before i went my unit actually replaced his unit in afghanistan so we have some it's an interesting kind of okay, okay. uh thing there and he um he basically he got in a, a major firefight his unit was in a major firefight where um, he was almost killed and his interpreter actually saved his life by killing two Taliban uh, that were about to kill him. That's a pretty, pretty amazing story. And this interpreter is, yeah. that has just a long, interesting story about surviving the Taliban, uh, you know, and, and then, and then how he learned English through, watching Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and, and then, <laughs> and then became, you know, and then when after nine 11 joined, you know, the U S forces to, to be an interpreter. And anyway, so Matt, Matt owed, he felt a, a lifelong debt to, um, to this interpreter because he saved his life and he caught, he, to this day, he calls him his brother. And he, um, so when he came back, Basically, his interpreter, his name is Janice, is now safely in America, said, um, I need help. <laughs> I need to get out of here. And so he started this organization to try to get these interpreters to America. Now, the interesting aspect of it is that he, he was able to bring one, one such interpreter and his family here. They were expedited the process. They got him here. And um, they were living in such horrible uh housing in washington outside of washington dc and kind of like a uh i wouldn't i wouldn't don't use the term ghetto but like a very underprivileged mm. area right very yeah, um and it was so bad and his wife had to they, they it, this is a it was a really bad situation matt usually mm -hmm. tells that can tell the story much better than i can and 
he decided to, it was so bad here and the culture was so different and he didn't have a job and he didn't know what to do that he and his family moved back to Afghanistan. And uh, as soon as he got back to Afghanistan, his family, uh, his, the Taliban threatened his family and basically said, we're going to kill you. And three weeks later, they caught up to them and, he, and they killed the family. And so Matt, Matt decided that it, it couldn't just be getting interpreters to America. It has to be getting them here and helping them resettle, helping them, um, uh, bringing them here and getting them housing, getting, bringing him here and getting them uh, a job and a car so they could get to their job and then hook them up with local veterans that will help them resettle. And so it's like this much larger comprehensive approach to it that our government is not not doing at all. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of, uh, that's pretty much no one left behind. And one of our goals with our film is to raise awareness, uh, you know, hopefully hold some showings of this film uh, and get some more attention to the cause. But then the next step is let's, let's pour some money into no one left behind and get, and get these guys here and get them resettled and, and help them, uh, you know, finish our promise to, to them. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, it's a great initiative and maybe to um, finish things off, what, what would you tell people who want to become involved? I mean, obviously they could, and they should support the Kickstarter campaign, but um, do you have any tips for them what, where they could read more or what, what, what they could do? A lot of the information uh, that I've been talking about is at noonelef.org. Um, they have a lot of good information there about uh, these these stories and what they're doing. You can contribute to No One Left Behind and follow uh, the different stories that these that uh, like even yesterday we welcomed home. It was the first one that I've been to. We welcomed home a, an Afghan interpreter who was uh, brought here by No One Left Behind. And uh, he's moving into San Diego, and we have in America we have different we have different um, uh, branches of No One Left Behind. So there's like an, a Los Angeles branch and a, and a, a Seattle branch. Uh, but supporting that also um, there, I mean, for Americans, writing your congressman, writing your politicians. I mean, obviously there's coalition forces there in Europe as well. I mean, I know that this is the same thing in Britain and in France, and that um, and where whoever sent soldiers to Afghanistan used interpreters. So write your politicians, tell them that this is a, a major issue, and that we need to get these guys here, and it, that it's it's there. It's not like this is something that we could kind of put off because their lives are on the line with with the Taliban hunting them. Um, I mean, those are those are all the things that uh, that that I think people can do in, you know, in, in the immediate. And then, um, also there's this organization called, uh, IRAP Iraqi, uh, Iraqi refugee assistance project, which is closely, uh, which is also partnered with no one left behind. And they actually have filed a lawsuit on behalf of Afghan and Iraq interpreters, um, against the U S government. So, uh, you know, follow that. And, uh, you know, hopefully we could kind of hold our governments accountable for leaving these guys behind and, and getting these guys here. That's exactly what we should do. Robert, thank you so much for having taken the time. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank you to all the others as well. Maybe you can uh, pass on the message to Matt and all the others and to Jenna. 
I think the interpreting community really appreciates it. And uh, we wish you all the best of luck for the rest of the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, and we hope it's successful. I'm sure it's successful. Thank you very much, Robert. I'm proud that I work with the NATO and the United States forces because they've done lots of good job. They came from far away to help Afghanistan, rebuild Afghanistan. Right now, I need their help and I wait for them, but I'm sure that the United States is going to help me.